0: Dear Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And thank you, God, Father, for the privilege that it is to be in this room. I thank you, Father, that you've called me to preach your word, and I thank you, Father, for a church that wants to receive it. I thank you, Father, for men and women who work, many of them outside the public view, Father, behind the scenes, serving you in ways that none of us know of, but are called nonetheless, and. Serve you in the full strength of their heart that's the God we serve, and we know you that way to be a God who takes the weak things of the world, making them strong in your power so that they may glorify you, and you do it all, Father, because you love us and you desire to show your love. I thank you, Lord that we're here, I thank you, Lord, that we can learn, and then I thank you, Lord, that in the days that will follow you will give us encouragement and and strength to Take what we learn and show it to others. We don't want to just learn things and keep them to ourselves, Father. And I thank you, Lord, as well, that we have uh, others around us who pick us up on the days that we may be falling down or who encourage us when we are discouraged and can give us examples of what it looks like to live in faith every day, just as those we will study in your word this morning. Help us to not only see these men and women on this page as examples, but let us see those in same examples in the men and women around us here at Oakio. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's return to the Hall of Faith. Have you all ever been to the Louvre in Paris, the famous museum in Paris, all the arts? They say that it contains about 380,000 objects and about 35,000 works of art in that one building. And if you were to try to see everything that the Louvre has on display, and if you only gave four seconds to each one, like speed browsing through the museum, it would still take you three months day and night to see everything that's in the Louvre. So you didn't get your money's worth if you went and browse through because there's too much there. Now, by way of comparison, our tour through the Hall of Faith has considerably fewer exhibits, but I'm doing my best to take that full three months <laughs> Of time. Honestly, how can we not linger over this magnificent collection of examples of faith in action? And no, I'm joking. We won't take three months. In fact, we'll be finished with the Hall of Faith by next week. But we should spend the time required to look at each of these people and what they can tell us about living with faith. Because as the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. And each person captured in the Hall of Faith is a picture of faith Driving both the thinking and the decision making of just ordinary people who've been called by God to witness to him. And where we are now in verse 20 is finishing up in the patriarchs, the patriarchal period and following them will come Moses in the Exodus. So we'll look at Moses as well. Last week I read through chapter 11, verse 21, but I didn't really talk to verses 20 and 21. I promised we would do that again today. And those are the examples of Isaac and Jacob. But when I introduced these guys, you may remember, as we looked at their forefather, Abraham, I mentioned that the writer's emphasis with these three men, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is on their faith and expectation of resurrection. The way they lived with an eye toward resurrection. Let's reread those two verses. Pick up in verse 20. The writer says, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worship, leaning on the top of his staff. Well, these are two very brief mentions of lives that were very significant in the Old Testament. Isaac first and then Jacob. Let's begin with Isaac. Isaac's blessing of his sons, Jacob and Esau, is the focus of verse 20. The writer says that when Isaac was blessing these boys, he was doing so regarding things to come. This is our first exhibit this morning. This is a well-known story. It's the moment when Jacob and Rebekah conspired against their father and husband Isaac to gain the benefit of a blessing that Isaac was determined to bestow upon the wrong son, that is, upon Esau, the one he preferred rather than the one God preferred. This blessing incorporated both the seed promise and the inheritance. If these are words that are foreign to you, again, I would encourage you to go back to Genesis and that part of the, the book of Genesis and understand it. But in short... This is the promise of the coming seed that is Messiah arriving through Judah and so on. But in the early stages, it was passing from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob. And it incorporated also the inheritance that God had promised to these men. But Jacob, being the one God had promised, was not the favorite of Isaac. So Isaac was going to try to give his blessing to Esau, the son that God did not want to have it. So knowing this, Rebekah, the mother and wife, conspired with Jacob to find a way to obtain it. And in the end, the blessing went to Jacob as it should because of what they did. Now, to the point of why it's mentioned here, when Isaac bestowed his blessing upon Jacob, thinking it was Esau, here's what he said. Verse 28 of Genesis 27, 27, 28. Now, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you. And nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now, Isaac, speaking to who he thought to be Esau, but actually it was Jacob, he spoke of blessings that God would grant to this son, to whoever inherits the covenant promise. He says things like the fatness of the earth, the abundance of the harvest, or of becoming the chief nation on the earth, of becoming master over the family of God. Later, when Isaac realizes that he had blessed the wrong son because Esau comes to him, and Esau, of course, is very upset at this, Isaac has little left to offer the second son. But what he does say to Esau is this, verses 39 and 40 of that chapter. Then Isaac, his father, had answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling and away from the dew of heaven from far above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve, and it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. So look what he said to Esau. Remember, Esau is his favored son. And now he's blessing Esau with his eyes wide open. He, he is well aware of what has happened, and he's well aware of who he's talking to now, and yet he acknowledges the reality of what lay in the future for this son. You notice he doesn't turn around and say, well, let's go back, do over, mulligan. I'm going to give you what I was intending to give you from the start. He doesn't do that, does he? He rather says this man, Esau, is going to be denied the blessing of heaven, that he would be a violent man and that he would have a violent family, and that in the end, his people would live only to serve Israel, though not without rebellion from time to time. And as history plays out, all of this came to pass. In fact, the family that descended from Esau eventually ceases to exist. The Edomites are no longer, according to history. So in both cases, what he said to the first son, not knowing who it was, and what he said to the second son, fully aware of what was going on, In both cases, those pronouncements reflect a life of faith, the writer says. Now, how is that true? Well, Isaac spoke of future events in both cases. He spoke about things that would come as a direct result of God's promises. Isaac knew that the covenant that God had established with him that was going to pass to the next generation brought all of these potential blessings. But he also knew it was not a promise that could be divided it was an all or nothing deal. Some kid was going to receive what God had promised in this covenant and with it came everything. And by the same token, others in the family could not have what the one designated by God was going to have. That's the nature of this promise that God had issued Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You can't take the promise of God and co-opt it and make it something you want it to be. You can't take something God has said is going to go to one and say, well, you know what? I'm going to cut it up and give it to two. You can't do that. It's not your promise. It's not your inheritance. You don't have the right to do that. And Isaac knew that. He didn't even like it. In fact, it was counter to what he wanted. And yet he still knew it and didn't try to change it. He was so convinced that what God had promised concerning the future was going to come to pass, that when he spoke of the future events, he spoke of them as predestined, unavoidable outcomes, even to the detriment of his favored son because of how the circumstances played out. So he, Isaac, delivered promises to his sons, built on top of promises he had received from his father, all of which trace back to the Lord. Only if Isaac believed in those promises would he have had reason to speak this way to Esau. Wouldn't you agree? Only if he really believed its source was God and its outcome was in God's hands, only then would you have an explanation for why he said what he said to Esau. Isaac understood that he couldn't reverse what he had spoken because he makes no attempt to do so. He laments it right along with Esau. Once granted, they were outside of his reach and Esau's reach forever. Isaac's intentions were not in league with God's plans. Nevertheless, God always gets his way. And in this case, he had to act in keeping with faith even after he realized how things had turned out. That's a real test of faith. The real test of faith is when it requires you to do something you don't want to do. When God's ways come into conflict with your ways, as they often will, when your heart has to make a fundamental decision about whether you're going to follow for what you want or what God wants, that couldn't have been a stronger pull than in the moment when Isaac looked upon Esau and realized what had happened. And yet he went with what God wanted. That is faith living out, even in this ironic case of someone who's not pleased to have to do it who's upset at how it transpired. So Isaac's an example of living in faith when it's not in your own best interest as you understand them, as you perceive them to be. Obviously, in the long run, it was in everyone's best interest that it would flow to God's anointed one, Jacob. But in the moment, that must have been a terrible disappointment to Isaac to say nothing of Esau. Speaking of Jacob, he had his own moment, similar in some ways, of living in faith In Genesis 47, when he was blessing his sons, that's the next verse we read. Verse 21 speaks of Jacob doing much the same thing. The writer says in verse 21 that Jacob blessed his sons. And then it says, worshipped at the head of his bed. Now, friends, this verse, if it perplexes you, if you can't really see into what it's talking about, well, this is a good example of something you should be aware of in Scripture. What I'm referring to is the way New Testament authors will take Old Testament References and use them in very brief ways the writer will say refer back to so-and-so's life and use just one verse or one mention of that person's life or of some event and by incorporating that one mention what the writer expects you and I to do as students is to go back and learn the full context of that reference. You can't make sense of this story if you just stay with what's in Hebrews 11:21 and go no further. You're destined to be confused. The writer doesn't expect you to do that. What he expects you to do is to say, Oh, Jacob, worshipping on the head of his bed. Where's that in the Bible? Oh, yeah, Genesis 47. Let's go back to Genesis 47. Read the whole thing. When you do that, you have the full context. When you've got the full context, now you understand what the writer's talking about. Well, we don't have time to read all of Genesis 40. Well, we do, but I'm not going to. Let's just get to the heart of what the writer's talking about out of chapter 47. And you know where to look because it's the mention of him worshiping at the head of his bed. That's the moment that's at the center of the example. Let me read you a few verses around that moment. 47:29. When the time for Israel, or that was his new name, his old name was Jacob. right, so we're talking about Jacob here. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. And when I lay down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I will do as you have said. Jacob said, swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. So now you see the mention of this bowing moment is really at the conclusion of something Jacob desperately sought for. And once he had assurance he would receive it, then in thankfulness, he began to pray to the Lord. But what was he wanting? Why is this an example of faith? Well, notice what's on his mind as he lays in his deathbed. He calls Joseph, his favorite son, and he asks Joseph, Swear an oath to me, son, that when I die, you will not bury me here in Egypt. You will go to the effort and the trouble and the time to take my body back to Canaan, to the land where my fathers sojourn, and you will bury me where they are buried. Now, why did Jacob care so much about where his dead body is? Was buried isn't the thing we shouldn't be concerned with is the physical that that we shouldn't get too wrapped around what happens to our body or how we put it in the ground or all of that nonsense because we're going to get a new one anyway. And we've already discussed the fact that the patriarchs live with an appreciation for resurrection. Ah, but that's the point. That's the whole issue here. He cared about where he was buried for the same reason that his grandfather and his father had cared about other things like how they lived living as nomads, as sojourners their whole lives. Why? Because they wanted a testimony of what they believed. What did they believe? They believed, as we said already, that the land of Canaan would be their future home after the resurrection, after the kingdom is set up, when they have their new eternal bodies, that's going to be their inheritance. They knew that was the case, but they also knew they weren't going to get it in their earthly lifetime. So they didn't bother trying to claim it in their earthly lifetime. They were satisfied to live as wanderers, as nomads, even though that was not who they truly were. So that the message sent to the world was, this is mine, but not yet. One day, everything you have, God has said, will be mine, but I know it doesn't come until my earthly life is over and I'm resurrected. What a powerful testimony. Well, now, Jacob, how is he going to communicate his confidence of that very same thing? Well, he knows one day his body will be resurrected, not literally the same material. It's not as though the same body you have now is used to make the new one. We know that. But in a sense, we can say we come back from the grave, as Scripture says. And in that day, he knew that he would live in the same land that his fathers had been promised. Therefore, Jacob says, I want my burial to be a statement to the world about what I believe my future has in store. Bury me where I'm going to live. Bury me in the land that is one day to be mine. Don't bury me in this foreign country because when I come back, my body's going to be over there. Put me in that place now. Not because it matters to what God is going to do, but because it's a testimony. It's a witness to the world about what I believe concerning my future inheritance. He looked forward to the resurrection and life on earth, and he wanted his body buried in such a way that it reflected that trust and that confidence. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, speaks of of this very moment, the moment when the Old Testament saints receive their new bodies, resurrected into full new lives again on earth, just as we will one day, and enter the kingdom at the conclusion of the tribulation. Daniel 12 is where you hear that, just three verses. Daniel 12, 1 through 3. Now at that time, speaking of the end of tribulation, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, the Jewish people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book of life, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep, that is to say, who die in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heavens and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is what the patriarchs believed. This is what they understood, even in advance of Daniel writing it down for us. This is what they anticipated. One day they get a bright, shiny new body, so to speak. And that day is to come at the end of a period of time God has planned. They live now, though, living with that expectation, showing it in the way they chose to live their life. You notice again how much resurrection factors into a life of faith. Faith is ultimately in the word of God concerning the Messiah. But resurrection is a part of that. In fact, Paul in Romans 10 says that the the way you become saved is that you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? That God raised him from the dead. Resurrection is built into the gospel itself. The appreciation that death is not the end of us. And that because one has conquered death, we can look beyond death to the real future that we all enjoy in a resurrected life. If you are not living with that mindset, I don't mean that every moment of the day is a conversation about resurrection, not necessarily, but if your thought processes, if your outlook on life is not driven by an appreciation that you get a new life, an eternal one, so make the most of the time you have, focus on what's coming after death. If you live like that, it changes everything. It changes everything. Each time in the life of these patriarchs, it was their belief that the rewards of faith await the resurrection that kept them from running after the wrong things now. It's just that simple. And conversely, by the way, the only reason the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, right? It's a false message. The only reason that has any audience at all is because there are enough Christians out there, untaught in scripture, who are giving no thought to a resurrected life. All they know is what they can see. And if they don't have what they need now, well, their greatest fear is to die with fewer toys than their neighbor. And that's the sadness of life that comes from not living with eyes for eternity, for an appreciation that it is in the resurrected life that the blessings that were promised will come. Maybe some will come now. But if they do, they're just previews of coming attractions. They're not even the real deal. And we shouldn't get wrapped around it. So we've left behind the patriarchs. And if I had to sum up for a moment... What that side of the story of the Hall of Faith is about is really on how a view of the resurrection informed every decision these men made, at least the major ones. Now the writer moves to Moses and he receives the most mentions of faith in this chapter. He and the story of the Exodus around him. Now, if the patriarchs centered on their expectations of resurrection, we're going to shift now and Moses becomes an example to us of faith's response to persecution. How do you respond when things aren't going well in your life as a Christian or as a saint? Let's look at verses 23 through 29. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. And by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. So the first example in verse 23 here, if you notice carefully, it's not really an example of Moses's faith, kind of hard to credit Moses with having faith as an infant and thus directing what happened. It's an example of his mother's faith, but it's on the story of Moses. And we're told back in Exodus two, if you were to go read it, you, you probably know the story. If you saw the movie, you're most of the way there. Moses's mother hides Moses because there had been an edict from the Pharaoh that All Jewish sons would be killed. The Egyptians were not pleased to see the growing strength of the Jewish slave population, and they feared that strength. So they sent word out to kill all the male children that were born. And as you heard from the reading this morning, they weren't successful because God's people did not obey such an evil command. And mothers who had children had to hide them, else that child would be discovered and killed anyway. And the writer says that she hid her son for three months. And notice the reason, though. It's quite curious. Verse 23, because she saw he was beautiful. Now, friends, I dare you to find a mother who does not think her child is beautiful. Is that really a reason? There's got to be more going on here, right? It can't simply be that she said, you know, I normally would let this one go, but he's pretty good looking. I'm going to hold on to this. one." That can't be it. If we look at the language that's being used here, particularly the Hebrew word that's used here for beautiful, tov, this is only one of two times in all of the Old Testament when tov is used and translated beautiful. It's a common word. It's used quite commonly in the Old Testament, but it's almost never translated beautiful. It's more typically translated worthy or pleasing, as in pleasing to the Lord. That would be the more typical use of the term. I think what the writer is saying is that her actions were faith In the Lord's promises for Israel, knowing that those promises were going to be accomplished through Moses. She knew somehow that Moses was selected by God for the purpose of delivering the nation. She had confidence not only to hide him because she loved him as her son, but then she went a step further, something I would argue few mothers would have done. She puts him in a little boat, so to speak, a little ark, and sends him down the river. Why would you do that to anyone you loved, except you knew there was a purpose in it and faith drove you to to act in that way? She was literally sending him down the river to his future mother in the Egyptian court, which was the plan. In fact, Josephus, obviously Josephus is not a scriptural source, but Josephus writes that Moses' mother had been given a revelation from God that Moses would one day humble the Egyptians. Josephus being Jewish, it's probably the case that he was repeating Jewish folklore. But even in that, it suggests something, right? It suggests that the Jewish people always interpreted what she did as an act of faith in what God was promising. So the first example of Moses is just the fact that he stayed alive is evidence of someone's faith to know that though she was losing her son, she was obeying God. Then next, Moses has exhibited his faith, now himself, but as a grown man when he refused to consider himself part of the Egyptian court. Now, if you know the story of Moses now himself, but as a grown man, when he refused to consider himself part of the Egyptian court. Now, if you know the story of Moses from Exodus, you know, he starts as Charlton Heston, raised by Yule Brenner's family. This is all biblical. I mean, you, just, you can you see it for yourself on TV and He's part of that world up until he's in his early, I don't know, maybe 20s, 30s. I mean, he's, he's approaching the age of 40. And he's, he's been allowed to spend all these years growing up in the most privileged place on earth, the most powerful nation on earth, the richest culture on earth. Friends, you really can't imagine as much wealth as he had access to in his life. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then there's that fateful moment as he's approaching 40 when he realizes that he is not Egyptian, that he is Jewish. And as such, he chooses to align himself with his Jewish brethren. And he does it in that very eventful way, that very focused moment when he has to step to the Jewish slave who's being beaten by the Egyptian. He raises his hand in defense of the Jew and he takes the life of the Egyptian. At that point, there's no going back. He's aligned himself. He is now Jewish. And as the writer explains in verse 25, he set his life on a new and far less comfortable Path when he did that. He renounced the court of Egypt as a result. He was then hunted. He was in exile. It's interesting, Moses' life is split into thirds. Forty years in the court, 40 years in Midian, 40 years in the desert. Which was the worst? I would tell you the last forty. He goes downhill in earthly terms. He goes from the court to existence with his father-in-law to on the run with a bunch of stiff-necked people. In place Of that temporary fleshly reward of living in Egypt, he chose instead eternal spiritual reward. Which he received because he obeyed the Lord. You might ask, why would he volunteer to take the comforts of Egypt away, putting those away and lead such an austere life? And the answer you already know, it's the book, right? The whole chapter we're studying. It's faith. It was because of faith he made that choice. What was his faith in? Well, it comes back to the same things we've talked about the whole way. Faith in the eternal promises that God has granted to his people, which will be seen in the eternal. And therefore, they're worth anything you have to give up on earth in order to obtain through a walk of obedience. That is. And in verse 26, the writer says Moses understood that his relationship with the living God brought him this new identity. He can't avoid it. That new identity was one of Jew. And that meant living under the same persecution that God's people were going to experience in the world. Notice in verse 27, the writer says he left Egypt not because he feared the king. Now notice that. That's, I think that's important because it resets some of the cultural teaching and the Hollywood version of this story. Moses did not flee Egypt because he feared the king, according to the writer. But why? Because he felt the Lord calling him to endure a new life as Jew. Now, I'm not saying he didn't fear the king. I'm saying he didn't leave because he feared the king. If he had feared the king, he never would have risen up against the Egyptian in the first place. I mean, if you're really afraid of the king, what's the safe thing to do? Sit down, shut up, and mind your own business. It wasn't for fear that he left. It was obedience. Christ himself tells us in the New Testament that since we are not of this world having come to faith, and remember, this is Satan's home field. This is his world for a time. Because we're not of that world, what should we expect? We should expect that he's going to attack us when we align with God's people. So the moment Moses aligned with the Jews, he came under attack. And therefore, to the extent that our lives live out our faith, we put ourselves in Satan's crosshairs. Our identity makes us a target. The only way a Christian can avoid persecution for their faith is to go out of their way not to live as a Christian. Don't talk about it. Don't share it. Don't live it out. Go with the flow. Fit in with the crowd. Agree with what the world agrees with. Don't speak up too loudly in opposition. You'll do just fine. I mean, from a world's perspective, you'll be fine. The enemy has no reason to attack you. He's got bigger fish to fry. You seem to be doing fine by yourself. But change any of those things. Live your faith. Speak your faith. Share your faith. Oh, my friends, you're going to be persecuted. Your employer won't like it. Your school won't like it. Your neighbors won't like it. Probably even your family. You can live for comfort or you can live for eternity. Here's the key to remember. The only thing the enemy can touch or take from you is what he has control over, which is what exists in this world. He doesn't have the power to impact your eternal future. He doesn't have the power to impact your eternal inheritance. His power stops at the doorway into eternity. So he can torment you here and now. Once you die, once you enter into eternity, once you receive your new body, that power is gone forever. And so knowing that a woman or a man of faith can endure persecutions in life because you have faith that in the age to come, you triumph over those schemes of the enemy. And all the reward that you may have lost in the course of the battle here is returned to you and then some, to be sure eternal rewards. And just to be clear, since some of you may not have been here long enough to hear the full teaching on this, when we talk rewards, of course, we're not talking about salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not dependent on your works. For no man will boast about getting to heaven by their own works. We're talking about, as a believer, what you earn in pleasing the Lord. Those rewards of heaven. Just as Moses understood, anything he lost by renouncing the Egyptian court was nothing compared to the riches in Christ, the writer says, which awaited him in eternity. Look there again, once more, where does reward factor into the decision? It's at the forefront. Moses had a crisis of faith moment. He had to decide, am I Egyptian or am I Jew? Do I want the riches of the Egyptian court or the riches God has promised to the Jewish people? He chose the latter for obvious reasons. And as the exodus begun, we move to the next example. Moses exhibited faith in the performing of the Passover meal. This one's very simple. We don't have to belabor this one. I assume everyone is very familiar with the Passover The heart of that moment was the promise God made that if you apply the blood of the sacrifice to your door, when the angel of death visits, your homes will be spared. That was a moment of faith. That was a moment in which Moses had to act in confidence that if he didn't do what God said, there would be something bad happening to the sons of Israel. And, of course, he did what he was told to do, further proof that when God's people obey him in faith, we become blessed by that obedience. In this case, they retained their earthly sons, obviously, More than that, remember the picture that's created in the Passover? Jesus, the Lamb of God. Well, when Moses obeyed and did what he did in that first Passover, he not only saved the sons of Israel, but he creates this beautiful picture of the atonement of the Messiah, which reminds us that not only are you potentially being blessed by obedience, but you have the opportunity to tell God's story through your obedience, to become a testimony by what you do. And then lastly, Moses leads the people to the Red Sea. If you think about all that Moses did, this might actually be his biggest moment. This Certainly, it's the biggest moment in the movie. And it has to be his sixth greatest moment of faith. Because remember how that moment began. We all remember how it ended. That's the cool part. But you remember how it began? The people of God are standing on the brink of, of destruction. They've been led by God to this point out on the very edge of the Sea of Aqaba. They're standing on what is literally the end of the earth. They've got the army of Pharaoh behind them. They've got canyon walls on either side of them, and they've got the Red Sea staring them in the face. The people react in obvious ways. They think they're about to die, and they're telling Moses off, and they're doing what they do. But what do you think Moses is thinking in that moment? Moses is thinking, did I take a left turn somewhere in the wrong place? Where's the map again, Joshua? Let me see that, you know. They're wondering, maybe for a moment anyway, do I have the people where they're supposed to be? That's how we would think. I mean, that's how I think. That's not what Moses says. When you go back to that story in Exodus 14, this is the thing that Moses says to the people at the moment when it's the bleakest and they're complaining. He says to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Now, I don't know that he had any special revelation at this moment that the Red Sea was about to part. I don't think he does, because the next thing that happens in this story is he turns to the Lord and says, would you kind of make good on what I just said, please? And the Lord says, well, what are you asking me for? Hold up your staff. There's a little bit of this back and forth that makes you think that he had confidence that God was going to save him. He didn't have a clue how it was going to happen, and he was hoping it was going to happen pretty quick. But but he's got at least the expectation of a salvation, doesn't he? And that the enemy would be destroyed, as they certainly were. The writer in Hebrews takes us back to this moment when he refers to the Red Sea to say, look, a man or woman of faith speaks about the future with a confidence rooted in their knowledge of who God is and his faithfulness to his word. Even if we don't have all the pieces, even if I can't tell you how God is going to work it out. I've been given the end state. I've been told what to expect at the end, and I can have confidence. What was Moses resting on? The promise spoken 400 years earlier to Abraham that there would be a time in which his people would be strangers in a land not their own and enslaved and then released. Look, God said that 400 years ago. It's going to happen. I'm standing here on the edge of nothing, and I don't see where it's going to go, but it makes no difference. And to the people, he says, stop your fearing. God said it's going to happen. Watch it. How do we sum up the examples? Well, the patriarchs were the ones who lived in relative peaceful circumstances in a world that was plentiful for the most part in supply, knowing that none of it was theirs and they needed to wait until they inherited it later. For them, that was a test of whether or not they would live a life of deprivation, self-deprivation as strangers in a land not their own, so as to demonstrate they were not claiming Their rewards too quickly. Learning from them, not enjoying the rewards of our life too quickly. How to keep a perspective that doesn't start to chase after the world. Now flip that around. When you look at Moses, you look at someone who is driven away from comfort, driven away from peace, having that already and then being forced to walk away from it into a life of want and trial and service and frustration and self-sacrifice. What do we learn from Moses? Can we endure persecution? Can we endure deprivation? Can we endure scorn? Can we do those things knowing that the one who is promised is faithful and that though we don't have what we wish we had now, we aren't going to let that drive us away and after the wrong things. There's really two sides of the same coin, wouldn't you agree? Whether you start with a lot or start with nothing, the world's going to tempt you to go away from the promises of God and try to get you to think about the here and now instead of the internal. Whichever way God has assigned to you, If you're the poor, if you're the rich, if you're somewhere in between, if you don't know really where you are, it doesn't really matter. Our call is to follow the Lord's promises and let that inform our choices and our decisions so that the things of this life just don't matter, whatever they may be. Rather, we seek to please the Master who bought us. Wouldn't you agree? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for reminding us in your word that we come to serve you and we have a time to do it and we Matter matters not to us, our circumstances. Let us serve you with the fullness of our heart, all our soul, mind, strength, everything we can, denying ourselves, considering the riches of this world nothing in comparison to the riches of Christ. And in all that we do, even into the way we die, Father, I pray we would have a testimony of these things. So the world would always look upon us and know that we took no stock in what this world offered, but we waited patiently for the blessings to be produced in eternity. And we rest in those things. We rest in that promise, Father. Guide us out of here with that mindset. Let us live it out as we go about our week and bring us back here, Father, for more study. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.